Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to this week's Blue Murder Club. My name's Lauren and I'm here with the brains and the beauty of the outfit. I'm Behave, it's Carrie, hello. Hello, hello, how are you? I'm all right, thanks, how are you? Yeah, not bad, not bad. Yeah, good, good, good. Manic chaos as always, but we got there. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it's like, I think I'll turn my laptop on to make a start and I... The, you know the thing that you dread windows update you're like oh my fuck god off windows i might as well, fuck off <laughs> might as well go make a cup of tea because this is gonna take bloody ages yeah but we're here we're here we're, we're ready to go aren't we yeah so we're mm. on season two uh, season six episode two yes <laughs> I was like, what? I, I say, you say season don't you i say yeah. series sorry i'm american she's american so yeah series six which is bloody britain bloody britain the bloody britain yeah <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> yeah, so Series 6, Episode 2. What are we doing this week, babe? We are doing the London nail bombings. Nah, how did you make it? Brilliant case. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, I really, really liked doing this case. I think because last week we did that vile serial killer, I think I messaged you and I said, because we've got a list, haven't we, of mm-hmm. what we want to cover for this series. And I said, let's do let's do something that doesn't involve a serial killer this week. I can't take it. No more serial killers. <laughs> yeah, so we've got... um. Yeah, we've got like a sort of, I don't know whether he was classed as a terrorist. Yeah, he was. Yes, so yeah, we've yeah. got terror attacks. Yeah, he is, This yeah. week, which is obviously disgusting mm-hmm. and horrific in itself, but in a different way, in a more manageable way from my view. Yeah, it was. Than and a it serial was so killer. clear and concise. It was just not easy. I'm not saying easy, mm. but it was a lot more easier than the serial killers and the... Gore and the blood and the guts, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree, definitely. So, yeah, off we go. So, I've done a little piece called London in the 1990s. Um, mm-hmm. I left school in the 90s, so I clearly remember the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's quite a long decade. I didn't realise, but researching it, when we went into 1990, it was coming towards the end of Margaret Thatcher's government. So, we were under a Tory government, mm-hmm. like we are at the moment. <laughs> um So here we are. The 1990s were a time of great change in London. The country started out with a Conservative government in Downing Street at the beginning and a new Labour government at the end. The IRA attacks gave way to the Good Friday Agreement and a period of peace. The Docklands, like London Docklands, along the Thames that had grown stagnant, um, boomed and found new life as economic centres. And um, there were new construction projects that changed the face of the city as the London Eye began to go up in time for the new millennium. By the end of the decade, i.e. the end of the century, the city would be a completely different place, boldly charging into a new era. Yeah, you had a little baby Lauren in London, in the East End, by the Docklands, all through the 90s. Yeah. (laughs) I remember all that, everything you speak of, of which you speak, I remember. (laughs) I remember the London Eye being um, transported along the Thames. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Obviously, off the telly, I didn't go and watch it. I'm not that pathetic. <laughs> I think I could see it outside, like my bedroom window. You oh, could see, could you see the, the construction, and yeah, mm. you could see it all happening. Yeah, 
Yeah, I remember the dome going up, the Millennium Dome. Um, 1990 was the twilight of Margaret Thatcher's government and she was forced to resign roughly eight months into 1990. She was succeeded by Prime Minister John Major. John Major would continue as Prime Minister for about seven years. So it's funny, when you look back, you think, oh, John Major, but he was very successful. He, he survived seven years, which is quite a long time, isn't yeah. it, in Downing Street, and he won a general election. From 10 Downing Street, he would lead the UK through conflicts in the Persian Gulf and Bosnia, as well as confronting violence at home. Early in his premiership, the provisional IRA launched a mortar attack on Downing Street meant to assassinate him and his cabinet. It would not be the only act of violence by the group during the decade, which would be followed by the truck bomb in Bishopsgate in 1993, mortar attacks on Heathrow in 1994 and several more. But despite this, Major's government began a series of peace talks with the IRA, which would eventually lead to the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998 with the next government. That surprised me as well because you always... Tony Blair takes full credit for that. Mm-hmm. He doesn't mention the fact that it, the way had already been paved by John Major's administration. Um, just a little side yeah. note because I've read Tony Blair's book and he doesn't mention that little fact. Funny that. <laughs> he takes it all, like all of it, yeah. literally. It was all me, I'm the bollocks. You know, he's like yeah. narcissist. Um, Major's government was one beset by conflict within and without. Despite handily winning a general election in 1992 and then a leadership challenge in 95, he would go on to lose the 97 general election to Tony Blair and his new Labour government, which had been gaining in popularity. In 97, Blair would eventually get the Good Friday Agreement over the line and Labour would remain in power for 13 years, in part due to its successes on many fronts. As mentioned, Blair's government would be responsible for the finalisation of the Good Friday Agreement and a measure of peace brought to London, with the exception of the breakaway real IRA. So yeah, for the first time in a long time, Londoners could kind of rest easy, knowing that they weren't going to go work and perhaps be attacked, you know, bombs Mm -hmm. and stuff, because it was quite prevalent thing wasn't it growing up in the 90s there was always bomb attacks and stuff to be fair it was but it was never a scary flight i've told you this story before i think i might have said it on here i was swimming when mm. the canary wolf bomb went off yeah and like we all had to get out the, the pool shook like you felt it but mm. no one was like i don't remember being absolutely terrified it was just oh yeah there's another bomb do you know mm. what i mean yeah everyone it, got used to it yeah didn't you kind of live with it yeah <clears throat> i'm not sure when that was that incident you were talking about was that that, was that in the 90s? Yeah, it would have been IRA. Yeah. They bombed Canary Wolf. I don't know if it was like how it is now. It mm. might have just been standing alone. Mm. But it was definitely, so it would have been the before, 90s, the, yeah, yeah, before the Good, Good Friday, Friday Agreement. Agreement. Yeah. Probably was one of the last ones yeah. then, wasn't it? Um, London's culture was also changing rapidly during the decade. After becoming a global phenomenon in the 1960s, British popular music took off again three decades later, led by groups such as Oasis, the Spice Girls, Blur and many more. A second British invasion ensured that many of England's musical talents would continue to change the world, a.k.a. it was called Call Britannia. Nice, So, yeah, it was like England, Britain was the place to be, wasn't it, on the world stage at that point? Yeah. Another death to impact the city would be that of the former Princess Diana in 1997, where the flowers piled up outside Kensington Palace and Buckingham Palace, and her funeral took place at Westminster Abbey, where mourners lined up for miles along the streets to watch her funeral procession. So all this is going on in the same decade. 90s London is, as it always has been, a melting pot of all nationalities, religions and sexualities living side by side, and on the whole, just getting along with their lives. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Because it is a massive city. There's like 9 million people, I think, that live there and plus all the millions that commute in every day. And it's packed, it's overpopulated, it's crowded. So when you think about that, it's a miracle how well people do get along (laughs) living in London. Um, It is a place of just embracing everybody and everybody just cracking on and doing the best that they can, really. This this was not what certain people wanted to see. Let's put it that Mm -hmm. way. As the story goes on, you'll see there are divisions there are people that belong to certain organizations that really don't want to see that um as the decade drew to a close a new symbol for the city began to take shape in 98 previously known as the millennium wheel the idea was to have this ferris wheel ready in time to ring in the year 2000 and its pieces were floated on barges down the river thames and it slowly rose out of the river to create an addition to the city skyline uh, Tony Blair hosted the ceremonial opening on the 31st of December 1999, although the eye would not open to passengers until March the next year. 
its rise symbolised the rise of New London, one ready for the challenges and the rewards of the future. So this is London in 1999. It's modern, it's very hip very happening and we've got a young good looking some people may say new prime minister a new government and the the future's looking rosy in 1999 in london however we wouldn't be making a podcast would be lauren if it it stayed there so this is the story of the london nail bombings we start with the brixton bombing so the Brixton bombing took place in uh, a street called Electric Avenue in Brixton, which is in South London, on Saturday the 17th of April 1999 at 25 past five in the afternoon. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, it is a bustling street market for families packed with shoppers, stalls, stall holders. Seeing an abandoned black head holdall lying near a bin, an alert market street trader who was selling private CDs and DVDs moved the bag to a quieter part of the market to examine its contents. And upon opening the bag, he discovered a bomb. Right. There's a Netflix documentary about this crime. Mm-hmm. Right, And they tracked down these two market traders that found the bag. They are proper scallywags. They're very, very funny. They're proper like typical like Del Boys. South London market goers, right? And it was so funny. They are hilarious. I'd advise you listen to, I'd advise you watch that. They're on right at the beginning. If you, <laughs> you just turn it off after these two fellas come on. They're so funny. But one of them said, he goes, I swear blind, no one believes me. I mean, I swear blind. Once we found out there was a bomb in that bag, a crackhead came over took the bomb out of the bag and stole the bag. (laughs) And he swears on his life that's what happened. Wow. Um, Yeah, they're really funny, these two fellas. So, yeah, they're the ones that found the bomb and they moved it to a quieter part of the market, thank goodness, because it was a very busy, vibrant market, this market in Mm -hmm. Brixton. Um, So he said that he quickly phoned the police for assistance because he said, him and his mate, they're like, we know it's a bomb. It was obvious it had... um, He said it was literally... A textbook bomb, so it, it was a plastic Tupperware tub, and inside it was a alarm clock, but a traditional alarm clock that had the bells that ring, <laughs> and there was wires coming out of it. And um, what else did he say was in there? There was um, oh, it contained six pounds of organic explosive fireworks, um, organic explosive fireworks and fertilizer, and there was over a thousand four-inch long nails in there to use as shrapnel. <gasps> So whoever planted the bomb definitely meant business. It weren't enough that the explosive was going to go off. He wanted the shrapnel as well to impact and cause even more damage yeah. when it went off. So, yeah, this fella, this market trader, he um, he found the police for assistance. But before the police could arrive and help or do anything, the bomb went off. And um, 48 people were injured that day. But thanks to that guy, that fella, no one was killed. There were some very severe injuries but nobody perished from that attack and they would have done like the bomber left the bag in a really densely populated area like yeah. where all the market stalls were and everything so luckily he moved it aside and it went off somewhere where there weren't so many people but one of the wounded was a 23 month old baby oh. who got a six inch nail in his head yeah and um 
when you go online, when I went online to research this, his X-ray was actually on there. It's unbelievable. It's like a tiny little baby. It's like a, you can tell it's a baby's head because you can see the two sets of teeth. Oh wow! Yeah, you know when you see X-rays yeah. of kids and, and it looks horrific because they've got you're like, why has that kid got yeah. so many teeth? It's because they're baby teeth and then they've got their adult <laughs> yeah. teeth. And then there's a flipping massive nail in his oh, head. No. Poor little sod. Oh. Um, so. This attack literally it came out of nowhere. The police had had no intelligence. There was no warning and no claim from any known terror group. So previously, when with the IRA bombing campaign, they would always give you a, like a five-minute warning. Yeah. They'd call it in and give people time to evacuate. And there wasn't this. So immediately the police are suspicious. They're like, my instinct is telling me this is racially motivated mm-hmm. because Brixton is, is predominantly a black area. And um, so... Immediately, the powers that be are like, I think this is a racially motivated yeah. attack. Obviously, they, they didn't rule out other things. They weren't like blinkered or anything like that. They were keeping an open mind, in other words. But I think the gut reaction was probably mo- racially motivated based on the demographic of the um, intended victims. So, the authorities had no idea who was responsible. And more importantly, they had no idea that this was just the start of a campaign of terror created from the mind of a young neo-Nazi, a lone wolf. I think they're the worst ones. Mm-hmm. At least if it's a group, you've got an idea. If it's just one, like, yeah, what do they call him, like yeah. a dangerous loner? Yeah. How, it's a needle in a haystack. They're not 100%. even on the radar, are they? It's not like you could say, oh, it's Al-Qaeda or the IRA or anything yeah. like that. You just, it's just... Flipping anyone, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it could be anyone. Needle in a haystack. Yeah, massively. So, while the police were keeping an open mind as to the motivation of the attack, those in the ethnic communities had no doubt this was a racist attack. The Asian newspaper, The Eastern Eye, even printed a warning to their readers that they could be next. So, because even though it was that heavily black community in Brixton, the Asian community picked up on it and thought we could be next. If if people if this is racially motivated, it could be any any mm-hmm. any of the ethnic groups that live mm-hmm. in London. So um the week uh, like the following week, like a couple of days after this attack happened, it the crime featured on that week's Crime Watch. A crime watch for those who aren't familiar with it is a uh, crime show that used to be broadcast I think every week in the UK. And it's no longer shown anymore, which is a real shame because they used to do reconstructions, they do public appeals, they'd put out things like rewards if or crime stock phone numbers and things like that. It was a very useful um, TV show. So it it obviously it was taken very seriously because they put it straight on Crime mm. Watch. So they made appeals that were made to jog someone's memory. I've put job someone's memory. Jog someone's memory. (laughs) (laughs) You don't jog a memory. Uh, To jog someone's memory about the large purchase of nails and the bag with the green head logo. That's all they had to go on. They knew it come in a bag, a black sports holder Mm -hmm. with a head logo. Mm -hmm. I suppose the one I told them before the crackhead nicked the bag. I don't know. But obviously, they're also the the police and that. They showed the clip. The doc I watched, they showed the clip of Crime Watch and they were saying like, has somebody been into your shop and bought a huge amount of nails who is not usually a carpenter mm. or, you know, it's something that doesn't quite add up. They were literally, that's all they had to go on. They yeah, had nothing to shows. go on. Yeah. Um, they, they also said there was a £10,000 reward at that point. In the meantime, they are getting every scrap of CCTV in and analysing it. But they, there are hundreds of hours of CCTV. So, But they're doing their best, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're working really hard around the clock, trying to see somebody in that really packed, densely packed market, somebody carrying that head bag. So keep that in mind. Okay. <laughs> so here we are one week later, the following Saturday, the 24th of April, 1999, Brick Lane, which is in East London. So, just before 6pm, a vibrant and usually busy street market with a high population of... Um, I've put Bengali. I don't think that's right. Is it... Oh, what is the word? Beng- Bengali. It's, oh, I can't think. I read the word today and I thought, oh, I've written the wrong word down. <laughs> um, but Beng- Bengal, Bengal? It's Indian. It's a, it's a highly Indian populated <laughs> area of London. Have you ever been to Brick Lane for a curry? Well, I was going to say... Stunning. Um, I was going to say um, about that, I have been to Brick Lane because I bought some bits for Secret Cinema and we did go on a Sunday and it is really packed on a Sunday. Yeah. Um, but doing the research here, it said that there's a big mosque, the East London Mosque's there, mm-hmm. so it's got to be... 
the Muslim community that live there. And I'm sorry about saying Bengali. I can't remember what word. Bangladesh. That's the word. Bangladeshi population. I need to come to me. So, I'm yes. just sad you're like, yeah. letting you, I, I, if I helped you anyway, I'd, I'd just make it worse. I'm just but nodding yes. along. Yeah. So, yeah. Bang, Bangladesh, because I was looking up some um, witness statements and stuff last night, and it said they're Beng, uh, Beng, Bangladeshi anyway. So, I was like, oh, I've written the wrong word down. So, anyway, yes. Yeah, so, Bangladeshi, Muslim population. Um, tend to live in that area as you pointed out you can get a banging curry down brick lane you've got a lot of choice because mm-hmm. there's a lot of um like indian cuisine <laughs> beautiful and i think isn't that where you get your bagels as well brick lane, brick lane bagels best yeah. bagel shop in the world exactly so that yep. tells me it must be quite a jewish community as well it so, is. it's just all diverse east london is isn't it like yeah. one around one corner you have a certain population around mm. the other corner you've got another yeah. and they you just live so intermixed it's lovely it's a lovely community yeah yeah definitely um so yeah here we are this brick lane market very much famous market lots of people go there don't they to get Mm -hmm. all their bits and bobs your bagels and your curries (laughs) (laughs) so it would appear the bomber didn't do his research properly as the main market take place on a sunday not a saturday so although it was quite busy it wasn't anywhere near as packed as it would have been if he'd have done his research and planted the bomb on a sunday and um he was interviewed afterwards about this and he said he caught he got a cab or got a bus or something to Brick Lane that day and he got there and he realised that he'd messed up because it wasn't that busy but he thought oh I'm here now I might as well just plant the bomb and you know wreck Ugh. as much havoc as I can he he realised he'd messed up but he thought no I'm gonna it's too late to to postpone it I'm gonna go through with it now anyway he'd already set the time on the bomb and that so he oh, couldn't do God. anything so he did realise on that day that he'd messed up but he decided to go ahead with just it anyway do it, yeah yes being as by now London, Londoners were now on high alert, a keen-eyed cabbie spotted the abandoned Reebok Holdall on Hanbury Street, um, which is just off Brick Lane, I think, and decided to put it in the boat of his maroon Sierra car and drive it to Brick Lane Police Station. He's brave, isn't he? Very brave. When he arrived at the police station, he got out of the car, luckily, because then the bomb exploded. I'm sorry, I don't know why I'm, why I'm narrating this like I'm on Jack and Ori, because then the bomb exploded. <laughs> but... um. I suppose I can because he didn't die. So. Yeah. Anyway, so he, this brave fella, has done the right thing. He's grabbed the bag, removed it from where all the people were, and driven it to the old bill station. Got out of the car, bomb's gone off. Bang. This action potentially saved so many people as the car's metal boot bore the brunt of the blast and only 13 people were injured and no one was killed. Wow. Right? He's, this fella has done a massive mm-hmm. flipping nail bomb and only 13 people were injured because there was like little bits of shrapnel coming off the car. Yeah, he's I have contained got, it in the boot. It's amazing, isn't yeah. it? Thank goodness he did that. What a genius yeah. thing to do. I mean... I mean, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go within hundred. I'd run the other way. I wouldn't you? have a clue. Yeah, no. I don't know what I would do. Pick up a bag and put it in my car. But thank God he did, because that man deserves a medal if he doesn't already have one. Um, I've got some eyewitness accounts at the end of this, which describe somebody who was there that day describes what happened when the bomb went off in the car. It's quite interesting. Um, at this point, DCI Maureen Doyle of Scotland Yard's Special Investigations Bureau headed up the investigation into the Brixton and the Brick Lane bombings, and it's codenamed Operation Marathon. <laughs> I was like, Marathon? Why have they called it that? The codenames do have me guessing sometimes. Yeah, because Colin Sutton in his book says they get them out of like the, the um, Ordnance Survey map. Oh, really? Yeah, so it's all like place names, and it oh. starts from A and it goes down to Z. And... Um, but I don't know if there's a place called Marathon. Perhaps there is. Maybe it's where the Marathon takes place. <laughs> that's, oh, I don't know. I don't. There must be a place called Marathon. That's where they get the cone nose. Well, from. when the Queen died, when it, um, Operation London Bridge. <clears throat> Was it? Because, I mean, ages ago they ran out. Obviously, they got down to Z and they ran out. And I think they started moving to place names in America. Ah. I'm going to put it into maps, see if there's a place in the UK called Marathon. There's got to be in there. Marathon. Marathon House? I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, moving back swiftly. Having received an anonymous tip-off from the bomber himself claiming the bombings on behalf of the neo-Nazi group Combat 18, Mm -hmm. she deduced he would attack again possibly the following Saturday in a densely populated area and culturally sensitive area without warning. Because obviously the last two Saturdays he's done it, so it's very 
it's logical to think he's going to do it again next mm-hmm. Saturday. These warnings made their way into the mainstream and the non-mainstream media in an attempt to warn the minority people to be vigilant as they could be his next intended target. This included an article in the Pink Paper, which is like the LGBTQ newspaper, um, which is still going, but it's online. Like most publications, Mm -hmm. like you can't buy buy it anymore. But back then it would have all just been in a, like you held it in your hand, kind of tangible form. Mm -hmm. Um, As the LGBTQ community were known to be on the receiving end of hate crime from neo-Nazi groups. The police presence was expanded and they were checking under the cars and issuing leaflets with instructions about bomb warnings. So, again, there's like old archive footage online where they're, you know, <laughs> they have the long stick, a bit like my selfie stick that I just done a video <laughs> with. But it's got a mirror on the end and they're checking under as many yes. cars as they can. They're literally handing leaflets out to everybody in the community. They were doing their absolute best. Wow. But, I mean, flipping it, there's 9 million people living in London and it is a needle in a, hay- a haystack. But the... That it was getting out there, obviously, even the previous bombing, the cabbie already knew that's probably a bomb yeah. because there was one last weekend. So I think it was very, very well in the front of everybody's mind. With the May Day bank holiday approaching, Londoners were living in fear of where the now bomber would strike next. Would it be the Chinese or the Jewish or another community? Who knows? Who knows? Um... Meanwhile, the Met officers were trawling through around 300 hours of CCTV, every bit they could find in an attempt to identify the culprit, and the anti-terror branch managed to find footage of the Brixton bomber on grainy CCTV. DCI Doyle took the bold step of releasing the image to the press in the hope that someone would recognise him. And she said they tried to like clean it up, they tried to clarify it, they tried to make it... You know, they enhance did their it. best, yeah, yeah, enhance it. But obviously this is 1999. CCTV now is shit, in my opinion. Can you imagine how shit it is in 99? Dog but, shit. Exactly. But um, they managed to find a couple of... I think once they'd identified him in the crowd, they could retrace his steps back and they managed to get a good one of him getting, like, from a bus or from a tube station or something. They found a clearer image mm-hmm. anyway. And it's pretty decent. It's not, it's not clear, clear, but it's not bad. Yeah. And... um. So she thought, right, I'm going to just release this to the press in the hope that somebody would recognise this man. He was described as being, <clears throat> excuse me, a nondescript slim white male in his early 20s and he was wearing a black leather jacket and a white baseball cap. And this was on Thursday the 29th of April. So she's like, right, okay, that gives us two days for someone to find him. So on the 29th of April, they give it to the press so that fresh on the Friday morning, so the next morning... On um, the, the 30th of April, it's in all of the newspapers. Yeah. There's two pretty clear images of the bomber, the man they're trying to locate in every bloody newspaper. And back in the 90s, everyone bought a newspaper, didn't they? On their way to oh, work, they'd buy a paper. yeah. Everyone had them. So the next morning, there's an engineer called Paul Misford, and he glanced at the morning's newspaper and he felt a chill of recognition. He turned to his friend and he went, doesn't that look like Dave? Right. He wasn't quite sure, but he spent all day worrying about what to do because he, he thought, oh, I think I know who this guy is. Anyway, and he knew as well that Dave, this Dave, was like part of the BNP yeah. and things like that, that he had racist beliefs. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so in the evening, his wife, eventually she persuades him to speak to the police about his suspicions. So at 5.15pm on Friday the 30, 30th of April, 1999, he rings the anti-terrorism police hotline and he gives them a name, the name David Copeland. David Copeland is a white, five foot four inch, 22 year old engineer's assistant who has links to far right groups such as the British National Party, the National Socialist Party and the neo-Nazi group Combat 18. Having identified the bomber, the police sped towards his rented flat in Sunnybank Grove. Uh, Sunnybank, I struggle with this. Sunnybank Road. I want to say Sunnybank Grove. I don't know why. <laughs> oh, I know why because it's in Cove. Ah, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really tricky for me to get it out. But yeah, that's where he lived in a place called Cove in Hampshire. This was at five fifty, so they've responded sharpish. You know, within half an hour, they're there on his doorstep, mm-hmm. banging on his door. But the trouble is. Yes, it was brilliant putting his image on all them newspapers because straight away someone's recognised him. Mm -hmm. But with his image splashed across all of the day's newspapers, it caused him to make the decision to bring forward his planned attack on the Admiral Duncan pub in Alcompton Street in Soho by one day. So instead of going on the Saturday, 
He's brought it forward to the Friday. So he's not at home when the police go banging on his door. Fucker. <clears throat> so as the police approached his house, the bomber was already in Soho, walking into the pub with a black sports hold all slung over his back. The evening of Friday the 30th of April was described as calm and warm, with many people beginning to start of the long weekend with a drink with some friends. There were already people spilling out onto the street as the pub is quite small. I thought we could take just a second here just to discuss what uh, we made of the Admiral Duncan pub because we had a night out there, didn't we, we last sure year? We sure did. Yeah, and I would agree. It is, it's long and narrow. Yeah. So it's just the size of... It's, it's tiny. It's, it's the width of a normal shop, isn't it? Like yeah. a shop width. Um, but the description of it back then is, I think it's exactly the same now. Mm-hmm. So as you walk in, the bar is on the right-hand side and it goes almost the whole length of the pub. And then as you get to the end, there's a stage, isn't there? A little tiny stage yeah. with a toilet either side. Yeah, the, the gents is on one side of the stage and the ladies yeah. is on the other. And the drag queens do their acts on the yeah. stage, don't they? And um, yeah, it's exactly the same that night that we're talking about now. It's yeah. the night that we went. And um, we really enjoyed it, didn't we? <sighs> Fabulous night. It was so much fun. Yeah, I think all of us came out with the same with the same impression it didn't matter who you were, how you were dressed, no. what your sexual orientation was, what your race was. Everybody was welcome. Yeah, it was very friendly. It was very friendly, wasn't it? Was it was a lovely community to be a part of. Yeah. It, yeah, it was just a fabulous, mm. fabulous night. And it was bloody packed. It was, yeah. Thriving. Absolutely yeah. packed. So similar kind of, I should imagine, similar kind of experience to what these mm-hmm. people were experiencing here. So, back to the night in question, bar manager Mark Taylor, who was age 31 at the time, he'd been a manager of the pub for two years, and he was on duty that evening, along with 32-year-old barman David Morley. That evening, 37-year-old Andrea Dykes, with her husband of two years, Julian, headed into London's West End to go and watch Mamma Mia with some friends. Um, John Light, who was Andrea's best... uh, Sorry, he was best man at Andrea and Julian's wedding... And he was going to be the intended godfather because Andrea was four months pregnant at that point in time. Um, Nick Moore, who was one of Andrea's friends, and it was John's former partner. And Gary Partridge, who was John's current partner. So it sounds like there's four fellas and Andrea. Yeah. And um, I think it sounds like Andrea and Julian are straight married couple and they're out with their three gay friends, Mm -hmm. two of whom are in a relationship um, and their ex-partner <laughs> sounds like they were still very friendly. So the five friends had some spare time to kill before they before the show. So they stopped off at the Admiral Duncan for a drink. Um, now, when I was um, researching this, I thought it was really cute. So you know um, John Light, who was their best man, and mm-hmm. he was going to be the godfather. To thank Andrea and Julian for picking him to be godfather, he shouted them all to go and watch Mamma Mia. So it's his treat. Love him. So they'd spent the day, I think, just mooching around. Um, She bought some maternity clothes and then they still had a couple of... I think the show was meant to start about eight, so they had a couple of hours to kill. So they said, oh, let's pop in here and have a drink. So... It's um, not far either, that theatre, is it? Well, it's all in um, the West End, so it's all pretty close by, yeah. Um, I just made a little note here that I think this friendship group captured the spirit of the Admiral Duncan where everyone's welcome and everyone will, will be greeted with a smile and can guarantee acceptance regardless of sexual orientation, background or anything else. Because obviously when we went there, none of us um, are gay, are we? But it didn't matter. No. We all, we all look quite obviously. I'm a drag queen at heart. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're a proper fan anyway, yeah. aren't you? Yeah. But we're all yeah. there with our like, wedding rings on, clearly like mum's night out. We're obviously not part of that community. But and but it doesn't matter. They're just very love, loving, yeah. accepting and just like, just lovely. Yeah. Chatty, friendly, not anything... I don't know. Just it was just a really nice, relaxing place. They've they've created a really relaxing atmosphere yeah. in, the, in the Admiral Duncan pub. I really enjoyed. Yeah. As the pub filled up, a young man was seen to be perched at the bar, sipping a cold beer with a sports bag at his feet. A kindly customer offered to watch his drink for him, as he said he needed to go to the cash machine, but he'd be back straight away. So he's gone. Oh, where's the nearest cash point, mate? And he's gone. Oh, it's only three minutes down the road. Do you want me to watch your pint? He's gone. Yes, please. I won't be long. Anyway, the, this man happened to be the bomber. So he left and he disappeared into the growing crowds of central London. And at around 6.30pm, the man who was watching the drink began to get worried as the young man hadn't returned from the ATM, which was only three minutes' walk away. So he should have been back by now. He alerted the bar manager, the bag, 
he's gone to the bar manager. This fella's walked off and he's left his bag. Oh, God. Mark Taylor was the bar manager and he thought at first it could be a joke. But when he looked inside, he recognised the transparent sandwich box, the clock and hundreds of nails. Uh, going back to Andrew and John. Andrew and John had moved deep into the back of the pub looking for somewhere to sit while the other three made their way to the bar when the bomb, bomb went off. Um, there was the crazy sound of the explosion, a rush of hot air which sucked the air out of the room, followed by the roar of the fire and then the thudding sounds of hundreds of nails embedding themselves mm. into the surrounding furniture and people, human beings. Then came the sounds of choking and screaming. Julian fled from the building, desperately trying to put out the fire that was engulfing him with his bare hands. Unable to see his wife or his friends, so he, he's panicking. Uh, Gary Partridge managed to crawl out of the pub but began to panic, looking for his pals. The last time he'd seen his partner, John Light, he'd been walking to the back of the pub with Andrea. Two men dragged John from the wrecked building, but his injuries were very severe and his legs were bleeding profusely and covered in burns. Um, I think one of the surgeons said afterwards that quite a large number of the injuries that came from that particular bombing were leg injuries because the bomb was on the floor. Yeah. So it took out that. That's why. Jesus. Um, <clears throat> so this is what uh, John remembers. He said, I remember an enormous rush of air and an orangey flash of light. Then I was on fire. I did not see the other four. Um, oh, this is Julian. So Julian said he ran out of the pub. I was waving my hands trying to put myself out. He said, then I found myself sitting on the curb opposite. And my bum was wet as I believe someone had poured water over me. And one of my shoes was missing. I can't remember anything about what was going on after the bomb. So Mr and Mrs Dykes, John Light and his partner Gary Partridge were all from Colchester. So they were all from Essex mm -hmm. and they travelled up to London to, to go and watch it that night. <clears throat> um, they'd met up with um, Mr Moore who lived in London. And the couple, Julian and Andrea, they got married in August 97, so they'd been married less than two years. I know they'd been like really like struggling to get pregnant, so they were over the moon that she was pregnant. Um, and, yeah, so it was his way of thanking them. Nick Moore was ordering drinks at the bar, and he was killed outright. Uh, later on, in a statement to the court... Mr Partridge, who was injured in the blast, said, we were in good humour and chatting. We were all happy. All of a sudden, I saw a flash of light. I cannot remember where it came from. I heard a popping sound like a champagne cork. I instinctively ducked and covered my head and face. He said, it appeared to be very calm for a few seconds. Then I heard people beginning to shout and to scream. Uh, Mr Partridge described the moment when he found out that his partner, Nick Light, um... At first, I thought he had lost a leg, but when I looked again, I realised it was because he was so soaked in blood. His hair was burnt. He was conscious and complaining that he couldn't breathe. The people laid on, laid him on the street, and I heard him call out Julian's name. But um, Nick Light later died from his injuries. Many of those who survived the blast were very badly wounded. Four people lost lower limbs, and another person lost an eye. Oh. Um, I dread to think... I dread to think about how someone lost an eye, Lauren. All I think is there's thousands of nails. Yeah, that's just what I was disgusting, thinking, isn't yeah. it? Um, one of the survivors included a man called Gary Reid. Now he'd taken the Dalf work that day and he'd visited an art gallery before stopping at the Admiral Duncan pub for a half a pint. <laughs> he said he'd been there once before. He's on the Netflix documentary actually, and he I think he must be an artist because he's painting while they're mm. interviewing him. Um so he said that he'd been to the Admiral Duncan once before and he thought, oh, I'll pop in here and grab a half pint. One of those decisions that changes your life forever and you just think it's just written in the stars, yeah. really. Um, so his leg and middle fingers of his left hand had been amputated. He said, I remember looking across the bar. There was no noise. I was still standing. I have no memory until five weeks later when I woke up in St Thomas's Hospital. Um, and Gary now lives, um, he's in a wheelchair, obviously, because, you know, he's had a leg amputated, oh, so he's in a wheelchair. He was at the um, court in, in his wheelchair. There's footage of him there. Um, professor Gus McGrather, who's a professor of plastic surgery, who treated some of the survivors, said the injuries were worse than those he'd seen in IRA attacks and among war victims. Wow. Going back to our... Um, friends who were going to go and watch Mamma Mia. David 
Morley, sorry, this is not them. <laughs> David Morley and Mark Taylor, the men who worked in the pub, they were both badly injured, but they did survive. Mark Taylor, who's the bar, man, mm-hmm. bar manager, is quoted as saying, I stared death in the face and lived. It obviously wasn't my time to go. There were no words to describe that pain other than hell. My whole body felt like it was on fire. And he suffered second degree burns, glass and shrapnel injuries, but he did go on to make a full recovery. On that day, more than 70 people were injured and 65 needed to be hospitalised and many suffered from serious burns. David Morley, who was the bartender, Mm -hmm. he recovered and he continued working as a barman in a gay-friendly pub called Brompton's in Earl's Court. Um, This is quite sickening, actually. Tragically, on the 30th of October 2004, so five years later, he was savagely murdered by four teenagers in a homophobic attack near Waterloo Station. He was only 37. Oh, man. Yeah, so after all that he'd been through, some scumbags went and did that to him. Gary Partridge was treated for burns and he recovered, but his partner, John Light, suffered 40 degree burns and after four operations, so they fought to save him, he had four operations, John oh. Light, he still died. Oh, age 32, lovely. I think a couple of days after he turned 32. Uh, Nick Moore died at the scene, age 32. Julian, uh, so he's the husband of Andrea, he was in a coma for three weeks and... He was met with the awful news that Andrea and their unborn son, who they'd named Jordan, had died. Oh. So, yeah, obviously, um, yeah, they, that was it. So, yeah, so that's all the crimes. And I think now you're going to oh. cover the um, delightful man who was the responsible. Yeah. Mm. Wow, that was touching. Uh, it's gutting, isn't it? Absolutely gutting. Right. Yeah. Let's get to this arsehole then, shall we? <clears throat> so. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The perpetrator of the London Nail Bombies is David Copeland. He was born May 15th, 1976 in West London Borough of Hounslow to a Stephen Copeland and a Caroline Copeland. Stephen was an engineer driver and Caroline was a housewife um, and David was one of three boys. They were a working class family and Caroline said that David was um, the quietest of all three boys and the most loving and the most sensitive. David and his family grew up in Yateley, Hampshire and um, went to Yateley Secondary School. Stephen said of David that he was just a regular kid into football and mini rugby. He wasn't angry or unhappy and he did very well at school. He was fairly intelligent and around... So, yes, sorry, and he was fairly intelligent. And when David was around 12 years old, he starts to say that um, he's having sadistic dreams of him killing his classmates and wishing that he would be reincarnated as, as an SS officer. And, uh, and, um, so at the age of 13, his parents took him to the GP as they were worried about his growth. He was still quite small for his age. It was here that David suggested that the GP took a look at his genitals and he thought his parents, it was his parents' way of seeing if he was gay. He was struggling with his sexuality and when the Flintstones was on the telly, the family would sung um, the theme tune, you know, we'll have a gay old time. <laughs> yeah. And he thought that was a secret signal that they were, like, poking fun at him. Mm. It's just why. Like, I get he's paranoid and I get that he's struggling with his sexuality. Um, but I don't think that's what... I think they were just singing the Flintstones. <laughs> Everyone yeah. did when it came on the telly, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, sounds a bit oversensitive. Yes, it does, doesn't it? So when David reached sixteen, he was increasingly angry and would listen to heavy metal music and was bullied because of his small frame. The bullies made a name for him, and his nickname was Mister Angry. He left school with seven GCSEs and he went to college, but left soon after because he said it didn't suit him. And he started to look for work and struggled to find work, which only increased his anger. Anger. 
and he started to aim his anger towards immigrants for the lack of work because you know that fucking nasty age-old story they're taking all me work <laughs> no it's because you're a lazy old i was gonna say the c word there sorry it's because you're lazy <laughs> So he had a job though, didn't he? Um, I don't know why he's got off. beef. Yeah. yeah, on and off. He just couldn't hold a job down. Mm. And my feeling is because he's angry, because he's lazy, and because he can't be asked. He's very young, isn't yeah. he? I mean, a lot of young men struggle to settle down, don't yeah, they? Yeah, at that age, 100%. I think he's got issues. Yeah, me too. So by the age of 19, his parents separated. And this is where David turns to petty crime. He was drinking and using drugs a lot around this time too. And in 97, so we're jumping ahead quite a bit here, David joined an extremist far-right political group called the BMP, the British National Party, which you've touched upon. They're right-wing, aren't they? Yeah, so they are far-right, far, far, far far-right-wing. And they're a fascist political party in the United Kingdom. What else can I tell you about it? It's a minor party. It's had no elected representatives at any level of UK government. The party was founded in 1982. I didn't know that. Did you? Mm, I watched a bit about it. The fellow who um, was in charge of it, there is a picture actually of him with um, David Copeland. Oh, yes, David I've Copeland got that in used yeah. to, uh, yeah. car- I don't know, carry his books or something. <laughs> <It's like laughs> oh, I don't know. No, right. Yeah. So, but in the 2000s, it reached its greatest level of success when it had over 50 seats in local government and one seat on the London Assembly. Mm. So, yeah, it got quite big in the 2000s. I wonder why. Probably after 9-11. Do you reckon? Definitely. Fuckers. So, sorry, that's me a bit of a tangent. <laughs> so, um, his racist and homophobic views saw him quickly rise the ranks and he was soon... for photographed with the party's founder John Tyndall yeah it was his name yeah, yeah John <clears throat> Tyndall so in 1998 after failing to hold on to a full time job his dad Stephen got him a job do you remember his dad Stephen what he was doing for a living was it trains yeah he was an engineer engineer, engineer. Mm. <laughs> I was trying yeah, yeah. Um, so he got him a job as his assistant while heading the extension of the Jubilee line mm. And I remember that being built, do you? So all the while, he's still in the BMP. Copeland was using the internet to research how to make bombs from fireworks. He also began reading racist and anti-Semitic literature from extremist groups in the United States. He had turned his bedroom into a shrine to all the Nazis, hanging flags everywhere and just being an absolute douche. He left his family home and went to live in a bedsit less than 10 miles away from the home he grew up in. So he's gone away, but he's still quite close to his family. But these views, I think he's isolating himself quite a lot. And you see this quite a lot, don't you, with these um, Mm. lone wolves. They start to isolate. They get deeper and deeper into the wormhole. Yeah. So, um, sorry. David took things one step further and joined a neo-Nazi group called the National Socialist Movement. So that's even further, right? (laughs) He's taking it to the extreme. He would become leader of this group just weeks before he carried out the attacks in 99. He confided in his doctor that he was losing his mind and the doctor prescribed him antidepressants. Literally weeks, Mm. months before this attack. So maybe the doctor should have heed warning a bit there and ask him why are you losing your mind and then maybe they could have, I don't know, done sectioned him or something, you know, because by this point... To me, his mental health is through the roof. Yeah, and he's even asking for help. Yeah, and he's actually, it's all self-inflicted. It's not like he's been, Hmm. it's all extremish, but it's all self-inflicted. He's done this himself. It's no one's reached out to him saying, this is what you need to do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I I think. I think these groups, once you're in them, you Mm -hmm. can become brainwashed. Yeah, yeah. So, ramped up with pure hatred, David gets an idea for targeting his victims when a few months before, while watching the news, he saw a bomb went off in Centennial Park in Atlanta, USA, during the Olympics. And in his sick little head over it, he wished that it was in the middle, uh, middle of Notting Hill Carnival, which was going on at the same time. So, in his head, he's thinking, well, why have they done that? Why ain't they done it now? 
So he thought, well, no one else is doing it. I'll do it. So not in all carnivals in August. So he's either got to wait until next August or he's thinking, well, you know what? I'll try doing something a bit different. I won't go for not an all carnival. I'll just hit, like you've said, um, places where I know my targets are going to be. Yeah. So... In April 1997, he looks up how to make proper bombs and he downloaded the terrorist handbook in a cypher cafe in Victoria, London. But following the instructions, he found that he couldn't understand them and they were too hard and he couldn't um, get the chemicals right, so he gave up. Shame. (laughs) So he's left it for a while. So this is back in 97. So... He's left it in one board one evening. He's decided to pick up this manual back up in 98 and he saw the instructions on how to make a pipe bomb, which seemed a lot easier than the chemical bomb he'd failed out before. So David started to collect all the materials he needed for this. So this included three black holders, a shit ton of nails, £15,000 worth of fireworks, so that's fuck loads of fireworks, ignition devices and old alarm clocks to speed the timers exactly how you said they've got the bills on and everything haven't they so this is around the same time in 1998 that he joins the nationalist national socialist movement too so another sick i heard this and i couldn't believe this this bit but he also used to let his pet run pet rat we all over the nails so once the nails were embedded into their target their intended target if that didn't kill him then them then he was hoping like an infection would but i was also thinking like not that these rats would have had it but well's disease stuff like that because pregnant female rats have that don't they and that's fucking dangerous as fuck yeah some of the survivors were on that documentary saying they did get them diseases really yeah and and because no one was looking for them. They had no idea what was wrong with them. Jesus And it weren't till later on after the investigation that they noticed that he had pet rats and that they, he was letting them, like you we just said. Them. Yes, so it, it did work. Fucking These hell. men were very, very poorly. I think it was um, the fellow that I was talking about who ended up in the wheelchair. Um, yeah. I can't remember what his name is now, but let me just check back. But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was him. Yeah, <laughs> it's awful. Yeah. One of my friends, God love her, like, I hope you don't mind me mentioning it, one of her exes, um, she had a child with this person. He fell over, grazed his knee in a dirty puddle. Mm. He ended up in hospital and died within three, four days from Will's disease. He just got so poorly. We're a pregnant rat. I think 24 hours it will live in the puddle for before it will go away. Yeah. So it was a 24-hour window where he's just fell over in a puddle, grazed his knee, nothing. Mm. It's fucking mad. When it's your time, it's your time sometimes, right? <clears throat> yeah. Sorry, Gary Reid was the man. Oh, was really? But that's what, the, you know, they, I don't know, I don't really drink in pubs and stuff anymore. Mm. But they always used to say, never drink directly out of a can yeah, in case of... Yeah, can. Yeah, wipe your can or mm-hmm. put it in a clean glass because a rat... You know, you do get a lot of rats, don't mm-hmm. you, in pub um, basements and yeah. stuff. So that if they wee on it, it can be quite serious. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah they do Awful. carry uh, pretty bad diseases, don't they? They do. Jesus. He's just... The lengths this guy's going to as well to cause as much havoc as he possibly can. I know. And the hatred in his heart. It must be... Yeah, it's awful, right? I wonder if he even intended for that side sort of like disease thing to happen or if he just let his pets run around run ragged no yeah. i think it, i think why would yeah i don't know mm. i don't know so anyway he starts to experiment with flash powders to see which gave him the biggest blast he'd practice on small lead pipes near his home the first of may they arrest oh so so this is getting so he then he goes on to do the terrible atrocities that you've just spoken about yeah. And then by the 1st of May, um, they arrest David and seize explosive materials out of his house. And when he's arrested um, in May on May the 2nd, 99, David was charged with murder. David was in prison on remand while awaiting sentencing. David wrote to a crime writer as a pen pal. The crime writer was male impersonating a female to get David to confess and this helped and was used as evidence to David's mental capacity. Sorry, 
he was assessed by five of five doctors to deem how severe his mental health was at the time of the explosions. Two said he had schizophrenia, one said he had a personality disorder with borderline psychotic disorder and the other said he had both. With the doctor's recommendations, they refused their plea grab bargain on the grounds of diminished royal responsibility. As he had intent and was planning, to, uh, and he planned what he was going to do and how he was going to do it. So basically, because of all the planning, because of the rats weeing on these things, because of all of that, he planned everything to a T. You're not insane when you're planning a crime. So it couldn't have been diminished responsibility um, and brainwashing and all that, but he still planned it all. Um, he was sentenced in June 2000 and he was given six life sentences with the minimum sentence of 30 years being served. The judge said that the public must be protected from you and assured that if you are ever released it will not be for a very long time and the public would never be saved if he was released, which I, I agree with. He was taken to Broadmoor at first Broadmoor Hospital for the criminally insane. However, David was cleared of being criminally insane, so he was then taken to Belmarsh in 2004. So, in 2007, due to new legislation, I'm so sorry, <laughs> David's sentence was increased. He must serve a minimum of 48 years at 10 months before being considered for release. During early 2004, David had a fight with a fellow prisoner and beat him so badly that he left the other guy in hospital. And then in June 2014, David attacked another inmate with a shank. He needed 10 stitches and David was given another three years on top of his sentence for wounding with intent. So he's still angry, he's still quite dangerous, I believe. He's not learning a lesson. But why only give him another three years? Because that, again, his wounding wound intent is dangerous, isn't it? He mm -hmm. stabbed someone. David said that the other prisoner had tormented him for days and while he was just um for days and while he um was waiting he just thought I'll just calmly stroll up to him and then I sliced his face open. Animal. Charming. Animal. David has now converted to Islam, funny enough, while in prison. Now I know through personal reasons that that happens quite a lot. Um, I know a few people that have taken to Islam during prison. It's quite a populated and practiced religion while in prison. Would you get special treatment if you're Muslim, do you think? I thought that because of someone I know. Mm. I thought, yeah, like the reason they're yeah. doing it is because... <laughs> I think Levi Belfield is one of them. Yeah, and I think, I, I thought, yeah, that's the reason mm. why. But apparently, I think because it's so heavily used in prisons... What is heavily used? Um, the religion of Islam. Mm -hmm. It's so heavily practised, maybe, that it's handy to get your hands on it as well. And it's handy, like, there's a lot of prisoners with a lot of knowledge of it. So that's the most mm. um, picked up religion. I'm yeah. trying to work out the words because I'm not religious <laughs> as well. Or converted, yeah. maybe. It's weird because I doubt if most people that go in prison are religious. Yeah, I think it's just that most... I looked all this up. Do you up. think they're bored and they just want something to do? Yeah, I think, like, years ago, like, people food. always thank God in prison. Do you remember that? Mm. In the States and all that. So I think this is just a way of them finding God. And maybe, as you say, they're bored, they need someone to forgive them. Mm. So maybe they're looking I'm for I'm a bit more cynical than you. I just presume that the halal food's tastier than non-halal. It could be. It could be. It like. could be. Or maybe they I get more time out because yeah. they have to go and pray. Yeah. God knows, but I just I must admit I did smell a rat when I thought, why has Levi become a Muslim? What mm. flipping egg is yeah, that? Yeah, I looked into it and he's the most converted <clears throat> to religion in prisons. Yeah. As of today, yeah. So mm. I don't know, but yeah, people find God, don't they? I just think, yeah, they're, they're good in me saying they want forgiveness <laughs> and the bad in you saying, no, they're getting good shit. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they get more time to go, free time to pray because they have to pray quite a lot. Maybe it's a lot of things. Mm. I don't know. So, um, he practices the religion thoroughly. Whether to show remorse or not, who knows? Question mark, question mark. That's what I've read. So, mm. 
David will not be eligible for release until he's 73. And even then, it's not very likely. On the judge's recommendations that he's still going to be... What's the word? A minister society. <laughs> yeah, dangerous. <laughs> yeah. A dangerous loner. So we're looking at the year 2049. Now, that to me doesn't seem that far away, does it? Yeah, but he will be really old by then. And yeah. then, again, there's no guarantees, is there, whether or not they'll let him it out. Just, it just means he'll be eligible, I think. Yeah, we'll just kick him every time he comes. <laughs> so um, David actually appealed the ruling on June 2011, but the court held the sentencing, and that's it. I don't think he will mm. be released until at least then. Yeah. So, yeah, um, we'll see how he goes. Yeah. That's David Copeland. And that's the London bombings. (laughs) Okay, so I've got some survivor stories. Yes, please. Um, So, first one I've got found here is a man called Terry, uh, Scott Terry. He'd just finished a shift at the Royal Mail head office near Oxford Street and was inside the Admiral Duncan pub when the bomb exploded. Blinded by dust and shrouded in smoke, he lay injured and on fire in the street, having been hurled from the pub by the blast. He said, I looked at my legs and all I could see was blood and lots of it. I was in so much pain that I held my breath and wished to die quickly. Mr. Terry was badly burned and he had 74, yes, you heard me right, 74 nails embedded in his body, nine of which remain in his spine today. He was kept in an induced coma for six months and when he emerged, memories of the blast swiftly returned. He said, I later found out that I was literally standing on top of the bomb. He said, I remember screaming out, what is happening to me? It felt as though I was standing in water and my fingers were in a plug socket. Oh, that sounds horrific. Wow, yeah. It was all a panicked blur, but I do remember a paramedic holding me and telling me to stay with him, and then it all went black. After emerging from his coma, Mr. Terry was transferred to a burns unit and he had to learn how to walk again. Although he feels lucky to have survived, he still faces frequent obstacles. He said, every time I go to an airport, I have to show a doctor's letter to prove that I have metal in my body. He said, and every time I take a shower, every time I look in the mirror, I look at my scars and I think of what happened. Mm. And he said, it will never leave me. Fancy that, 74 nails. And they managed to remove all but nine of them. I can't believe that. That's just horrific. He must have looked like flipping Pinhead out of Hellraiser. I love him. Just disgusting. I should imagine most of them would have been in his legs because of the position of the bomb. Yeah. And he said he looked down and his legs were covered in blood. Uh, right, here we are. There's another eyewitness account here of a man called Emdad Talukder. I apologies for that horrific pronunciation. I'm just doing it phonetically. Um, but he was near the scene when the device went off at 6 o'clock p.m. throwing debris from the car four stories high. So this is the Brick Lane mm-hmm. bombing. Um, yes, so Mr. Talukda, who had been walking along Brick Lane, told BBC Newsnight the, du- the car's doors flew up, in quotes, like a piece of paper, and a shard of glass hit him on the head. He said, the glass was about four inches long and immediately I was showered with blood. My whole body was a sea of red. He said he would never forget the fear he saw in people's eyes as they ran. People had no idea where to go or how to save themselves. So he was one of the 17 that got injured from the Brick Lane bombing. Wow. Yeah, there's a little clip of him online where he was on the news. And it's, it's probably, I think it was like a 10 year afterwards looking back. So all of his wounds are healed and everything. But yeah, he described, um, yeah, the car door looking like as, as light as a sheet of paper because it was four stories higher. That's how high the door. Jeez. That's why I said like wait until later on because I've got a description. Yeah. Wow. Like an eyewitness account of what that car looked like when the bomb went off. Wow. Yeah, so the impact was so strong that the door went four stories high. That's madness. <laughs> yeah, I know, isn't it? So, yeah, there we have it. That is the story, like you said, of the nail bombings that took place in 1999. That, uh, wow. That campaign of terror during that April in that year. So, yeah, I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank you for coming back um, for Series 6. Glad to be here. Hey. <laughs> um, if you're enjoying our podcast, please rem- remember to give us a five-star rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please recommend us. There's nothing like a personal recommendation, is there, Lauren? Never. So We'd please recommend it. us to your friends and your family. Tell them they have to listen to us because we're the best true crime podcast out there. <laughs> um, we also have Patreon. So if you run out of our episodes, you can chuck us a few quid and listen to our extra bonus episodes on patreon we've got some good ones haven't we we sure have and um, we've got some past life 
reincarnations. I've tried to think mm-hmm. of them all. Yeah, the most recent ones we've done. We, you did a doppelganger one, didn't you? Doppelganger, yeah. Yeah. We've done. Oh gosh, what was the one you did? The what was what was she called? The Countess of Blood or something? Yeah, that one. Oh, yeah. now you're making me say it. I can't it. say nah. it, no. <laughs> got um, loads over there. Go yeah. check it out. Yeah, we've got loads of episodes over there, which are all very entertaining for your listening pleasure. Um, all that remains to be see, said is you have a great week. Take care. And we will be back very soon with our next episode, episode three. Take care. See you later. Bye.